Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are starting a new series. That deserves a koosh ball, you know it. That is not the way that goes at all. We're not watching Jurassic Park. We watched Jaws today. So we're watching Spielberg. Hey! Because there's a lot of Spielberg that I have not seen. I'm shocked by s- some of these. Not that shocked. Okay, like I get so, it. Okay, so let's let's look work away from the most recent backwards to the list that we're gonna do because then that gets us into what we're doing today. Uh-huh. The most recent Spielberg directed film that we're gonna do is Lincoln. Yes, um, which is more just that's a recent film he's done. We wanted to see it, and it's got Daniel Day Lewis. It's a prime example of Spielberg's latter work of historical epic biopics sure. and like we've like, seen some of the really recent ones that he did sure and like war centric you know okay cool and you know again daniel day lewis so sure i'm i'm very curious we just never got to see it yeah then we get into minority report which you know it was just right there i never saw it it boggles my mind boggles it, it my kind mind of boggles my mind too that i haven't seen that one it's kind of one like, I didn't get a chance to see it. And then, like, people were like, well, it's dumb. And then it was like, well, whatever. And then it was, eh. And I just didn't get to it. Of all the movies that came out in the early 2000s, that was one of the few that actually got, like, but also, big hype. But also, early 2000 was also early college for me. So I did not have a ton of time right there at early college. Also, a terrible time for movies. Yeah, true. <laughs> really true. fucking bad movies true, came out around True facts. Then. And also some really good uh, sleeper movies came out at that time. Minority Report might kind of be one of those. Inter- interesting. Then we have Color Purple. Which, okay. Yeah, okay. This, <laughs> this is-, is where we have to address something about Steven. Okay. I know that this is a this movie is going to be difficult just because of the subject matter alone. Yeah. But this is a movie that I've always intended to see because of what it meant to Oprah Winfrey's career, mm-hmm. as well as Whoopi Goldberg. Oh, yeah. So those are, I mean, like, those are two women whose careers that I just grew up with, two women that I loved watching on television. I saw regularly between Oprah's talk show and seeing... Whoopi Goldberg on Star Trek constantly. I mean, that that was part of my childhood. Like, those two women on my te- television regularly. I knew this movie was a, was a, such a huge thing for them. I've never seen it. Now, what's interesting is you might say that's a big gap, especially because neither of us have seen Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan. Correct. Yeah, someone's going like, wait a minute. And admitting to the fact that, based on the name of this show, we haven't seen those movies. Yeah. And I'm pulling my out my giant veto card on both of those for a couple of, well, for like basically, like, I typically don't like war films. Mm-hmm. It's just my thing. You have listened to me talk about war films that I've actually thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, we've talked about them on this show. Yeah, absolutely. Schindler's List, my heart cannot take. <laughs> um, I have... I just, I cannot watch a movie about people in the gas chamber. I just, I can't, I cannot. The Holocaust is just one of those things that is just one of the greatest tragedies of humankind. And I cannot do it. It breaks my heart. I, like, I'm about to cry just thinking about it. I can't do it. I cannot watch a movie. I know it's, I know it's cinema, like, but I cannot do it. Yeah, it's, 
but <laughs> I just cannot. It really stinks because it is widely considered his masterpiece. I, I absolutely know and recognize that, and I, ca- I cannot watch it. That's one of those movies that I'm like, I know I will sit down one day and watch it, I, me yeah. personally, just because it's like, I need to see it. Yeah. And then we have Saving Private Ryan. That came out at a time where I just can't. I just can't. Mm-hmm. I can't. No, I will tell you from what I've heard about Saving Private Ryan, it has now morphed into a cliche, mostly because so many fucking movies copied it. Sure. That watching it now is like watching the most milk toast of movies, other than some very impactful sequences. I think in a few more years, I might be able to do that one, but I will never be able to watch yeah. Schindler's List. I just, I won't. Mm. Nope. So. Saying that, we are skipping past that whole middle period because we've also seen all the other fucking movies, like Jurassic Park. Yeah, like we've seen, yeah, we've seen Jurassic <laughs> Park, we've seen Hook, we've seen, we've seen all of those other ones. But what haven't you seen from his career early on, Diana? Other than Color Purple, I have not seen Close Encounters. Ooh, which I know is a big deal. So I mean, big I big that. deal in sci-fi. And then we get in today's film. I have not seen Jaws. When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community, it's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. Now, I will say I have seen scenes from Jaws because they would play this on television all the time. Oh, yeah. But as soon as I realized what it was, I would change the channel because I could not watch this film. We just got done with a uh, a horror series. Yes. I think this movie scared you more than any of those. This movie made me more uncomfortable than any of those other films combined. <laughs> I would rather watch Saw than watch Jaws. This movie's still genius. This movie's great. There's a reason it's been, what, f- almost 50 years? All, all of the dated special effects stuff aside, this movie's genius. This movie's phenomenal. Oh my god! I can't like I. This movie made me so uncomfortable, and there's a reason why. There's a reason why I couldn't watch this movie. I have a fear of the vastness of the ocean. Any time as a child, anytime I saw anything on TV that showed marine life, particularly sharks, whales, dolphins, I was fine with. But <laughs> anytime I saw that, I would all of a sudden start to have that uh, that. Oh my God, the floor is dropping out from under me response. And, and I was on swim team. <laughs> and our swimming pool had at least a 40 foot deep end. Makes sense for, for so, diving and stuff. So, of course. So then all of a sudden it would be like, oh my God, it's in the pool. It's in the pool. <laughs> and it would feel dark and it would creep me out. And I would be at school and they would show something on. The TV, some special about whatever. And if it had anything to do with me, I would have to turn my head. I'm like, I cannot see this. This is going to create a huge problem for me because I have to get in the pool today. Could, cannot, could not do it. Like, even when we were watching this, I was like, I was having those reactions again. I'm a full grown adult. I am not going in the water. This is not going to be a problem for me. And I am still having this reaction. Because this fucking movie will do that to Abs- you. Absolutely. There's two super fun things about this. Mm-hmm. Is that... And and a lot of this is public knowledge. Mm. This movie is a masterpiece by accident because we will talk about all of the fucking mishaps and mayhem 
that happened in the course of this movie. And I I do know a good deal about that because it's been so legendary and it's been forever. But the fact is, is that this is Steven's first major motion picture. Mm-hmm. I don't think he had any fucking clue what he was in for. <laughs> but this shows you the level of genius he was sure. operating at mm-hmm. as a, as both a director and now really as a producer is that he still knew how to work with it and put it all together. Mm-hmm. Damn, this movie holds up. It holds up so well. It's great. Well, the budget for this movie was $7 million. What year, what year was this? Again? 1975. Okay. It's opening weekend. It took in $7 million. $62,000. Okay, so opening weekend, it automatically made its money back. Great. It's US gross. This is in its initial run. Mm-hmm. Was $261 million. Globally, it took in $472 million. This movie alone set up Spielberg for the rest of his life. This movie is the first ever blockbuster. It's amazing. 67 million people went to see this movie during its initial release. Damn. It almost didn't happen that way. Really? Okay. By accident. (laughs) Okay. This movie was supposed to come out in Christmas 1974. Okay. Because the production was only supposed to take about three months. Mm. The delays wound up pushing it to the summer of the next year. And traditionally, at that time in the 70s, summer was when the crappy movies got dumped. Yeah. Yeah. Summer was not when you went to the films. You went to see good movies at Christmas time with your family. And then you'd go on vacation to the beach. Yeah, to the warm climate. But beachgoers across the country flocked to the movie theaters. Yeah. For this thriller. And yeah, here's the thing, Universal knew what a fucking hit they had. Sure. Like as much of a mishap as this was, when they got the final film, they put in like a $700,000 ad budget on television. Well, okay. So this movie's been around forever, so there's going to be a good chunk of this trivia that people have heard about just through legend alone. Yeah. You hear that theme, you're done. (laughs) You're done. You already know, we got a hit. You got a hit. That's it. And and maybe, but I don't know that anybody thought, as they were putting this all together, nobody thought that. I mean, at a certain point, Steven was like, I don't even care about how good it is. I just have to get the movie made. Sure, I have to deliver so that they don't sue me. I have to I have to complete my contract. No, I, I totally understand that. You're just too close to the project. You're too, you're too close to the problems that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. It's not until they got the final package put together that they went, oh, shit, we have something amazing. <laughs> yes, yes, you, yes, you do. It was so popular because it was both a popular thriller that's centered around the season. It is very good quality. I mean, again, even with the fish being, I mean, you can tell even by today's standards, it's still pretty good. Well, and we will get into part of why that happened. Sure. It all comes down to all the pieces fit together perfectly mm-hmm. and made it at the time the highest grossing film of all time, an honor that Spielberg has held a few times in his career. Yep. This is the first film to gross over $100 million in movie theaters. Nice. And that's even more amazing because it only opened on 490 screens. Wow. Within 78 days, it was the highest grossing film of all time. That's, I mean. And hit that mark. I mean, we're so, we're so spoiled. I mean, pre-pandemic, we're so spoiled. 
I know. But like, yeah, 78 days, that's not very long. And even by the time it, it got past that highest grossing mark, it was under a thousand screens. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, they, they originally intended to put it in that many movie theaters. Mm-hmm. And then the MCA executives who owned Universal went, no, 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 no. Limit it mm-hmm. so we can have lines around the block. Yeah, yeah. And that was the start of that. They limited the initial release mm-hmm. so they could show how many fucking people were ready to go see this movie. Yeah, you, you make a it a special thing. And and that's that's not a thing anymore. But I, uh, even, even with the new Star Wars releases, I remember the lines waiting. Well, with it depends on what kind of like cut and like how they were showing it. But... <laughs> they, got a little, they got a little cheeky i like it some of the other little promotional tie-ins shops were selling ice cream with flavors like sharklet and vanilla that's kind of gross <laughs> and there was a jaws themed disco that operated in the hamptons for a while okay it's the 70s of course I mean, I mean, yeah but this was a bit of a double-edged sword there was a beach panic after this movie came out yeah thank there was a beach in SoCal that got cleared for sharks at one point over fears with from the movie. Mm-hmm. They found out it was dolphins. Yeah, that's fair. Then a pygmy sperm whale got beached and they mistook it for a shark and the bystanders attacked it. Mm-hmm. That did not end well. Yeah, that's not surprising. But at the same time, that could and has happened today. Still, it <laughs> this movie's not going to help fears. No. It single-handedly caused an industry-wide dip in package holiday travel because people didn't want to go to the beach after seeing this. We're going to go ski. Uh, I did, however, raise interest in shark fishing. Okay. So, they, you know, trade-offs, I guess. Okay. I don't, know if that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing, but okay. Just the fact that it had such a cultural impact that it was, like, messing with whole industries of travel and beach-going. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Because because that feeling you had, there are people in the initial time of seeing this movie that were like, I will never go to the beach again. <laughs> this movie scared the shit out of people. Yep. And it is wild. Well, we get into our writing. Mm-hmm. And we are going to start off with the writer of the novel. Okay. And screenplay credit, Peter Benchley. Peter Benchley hasn't written a lot else. He also wrote The Deep, another one of his books, The Island, an adaptation of his book, and then lots of television adaptations of other stories and books he's written. Okay. We also have Carl Gottlieb writing the screenplay. Oh, okay. He was part of a bunch of 60s and 70s improv comedy that was pretty influential and then wrote for a bunch of comedy shows in the 70s. This is actually his first screenplay. From there, he writes Which Way is Up, Jaws 2, The Jerk, Caveman, Dr. Detroit, and Jaws 3D. <laughs> okay. So what do we think of the writing of this film? I mean, I'm here for it. I'm so here for it. It's great. I mean, right from the beginning, the plot is perfect. Yeah. I mean, the plot is pretty perfect. You've got, there's a killer shark. Shark kills somebody. Mayor is like, okay, that sucks. But if I shut down my beach for one person dying, the whole town is going to suffer. Especially because it's the 4th of July. It's the 4th of July. It's our biggest holiday weekend. So like, and like, it's just one shark and he's probably gone now. So no. Okay. Worried, worried sheriff. Okay. So that's our dynamic. Mm-hmm. 
Then little kid dies. Uh huh. Angry town people. Then we get shark expert. Then we get drunken sailor. <laughs> These are our players. I'm here for all of this. Now we gotta go kill the shark. Now we gotta get the shark because dude loses leg, almost eats sheriff's son. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, and we just... keep almost killing that other child who keeps being left on the beach. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time they'd show that child, he is alone. He is being abandoned. And I am worried for his safety. And that also made me very uncomfortable. I, I chalk it up to 70s parenting. Right, yeah, I mean. Of like, let the kid run, play on the beach and do his thing. But it is wildly disconcerting but like every time they're looking for a child i'm like oh no they ate that child <laughs> it's also very steven spielberg of like let's let's call lowest common denominator this principle that's a, that's a common trope of steven spielberg shitty usually shitty dads but shitty parents in general he's really good at both distilling characters to their base mm-hmm. archetypes sure but then leaving enough room for the actors to put a bunch of like reality and feeling into them mm-hmm. which is why you can get very weird eccentric characters like a quint or like a malcolm in jurassic park but they never feel like they're not real uh, agreed i think especially when you get into some of these films you kind of have to go with the base archetypes just to get to the point yeah i think that's really like the the best course of action it's interesting because Benchley's source material is, having not read it, probably trash. Spielberg mentioned that he wound up rooting for the shark while reading the book because the characters were so unlikable. Fair. <laughs> I, mean, fair I mean, like, to be honest, I mean, our sea captain and our expert are not likable people. They're just not. They're not, but they are, they have that knowledge. Well, it's just that their goals are made very clear so you can sympathize with them. That's the key. That's what you have to do when you've got a bully or just a bad guy. You have to, in order to root for them just as characters, you have to understand what their goals are. And Peter Benchley had no fucking clue how to do that. Probably. Benchley stated that if he had actually known how sharks truly behave, he would never have written the book. Fair. Because great whites are apparently very cautious. They do not, like, swim up and just rapidly attack. Mm. They attack when they feel threatened. Mm -hmm. So, like, he's writing just this terror in the sea story, and it's like, that's not how sharks do things at all. No. So the producers noted that had they read the book more than once, they probably would have never made the movie in the first place because of all the problems they could foresee in trying to make this into a movie. Fair. But they they did it anyway. That's okay. And Benchley, to his credit, admits that by cutting all of the different subplots from his novel, it allowed the characters to be written as real people. So like... All this work that they did in overhauling his book mm-hmm. made it into an infinitely better story. Yep. <laughs> because apparently he just decided to go on side quests and subplots with a bunch of different characters. I mean, that's what I tell people, anyone who likes the the musical Wicked, and they're like, oh, I'm going to go read the book. And I'm just like, do you really love the musical Wicked? Yeah. Don't read the book. You'll <laughs> hate it. You'll absolutely hate it. It's a great book. But it's a wildly different story because it does that. It's got 8,000 different subplots. Because, you know, 
It's a let's, book. Let's <laughs> pad it out and write even more. Because it can. <laughs> Peter Benchley got $175,000 from the producers to option the film rights. Just a lot of fucking money. Yeah, 1975, yeah. But it was a giant bestseller. So. Sure. He also got to write the first draft screenplay, which was extremely faithful to the novel. Sure. Spielberg hated it and rejected that draft. Fair. Then another draft. Then a third draft. Every time Benchley turned in a draft of this script, Spielberg went, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, Benchley wound up getting thrown off the set when he objected to the climax of the film. He objected to the climax of the film? Yes. Horrible. He thought it was just unbelievable. Spielberg, being young and a dick, Spielberg's kind of an asshole at this point. There's no kind of. He is an asshole. Yeah, but like especially an asshole while making this movie. Sure. <laughs> because he's young and he thinks he knows everything. Yeah. He was livid and told him, I'm going to hold the audience's attention for two hours and have them believing literally anything can happen. Fair. And I went... It's a dick move to say that to Benchley, but he's fucking right. Fair. He's like, by the time we get to this point in the film, no one's going to give a shit, dude. Yeah, nobody cares. We're blowing up the fucking shark. Yeah. Die mad. Yeah, I mean, even I was like, well, that's ridiculous, but I don't care. It's ridiculous, but it's so satisfying. Yeah. like Because this thing is a monster. Yeah, I didn't care. Ugh. And just, you know, one more note on how bad that book probably was for movie making. Spielberg told Richard Dreyfuss not to even read the book since his film was going to be completely different. Just like, don't, this, don't it will not help time. you. <laughs> this is not going to help you in any way prepare for this movie. That's fair. Don't waste your time. Gottlieb, for his part, had two inspirations for depicting the shark. The Thing from Another World. Oh, hey. Oh, uh, yeah. Quote, a great horror film where you only see the monster in the last reel. Okay. And it came from outer space. <laughs> the suspense was built up because the creature was always off camera. Okay. I respect that. That is the key. Now, there's an there, there's probably a good debate as to how much of that was in the writing mm -hmm. and how yeah. much of that was out of necessity. Necessity, yeah. Because also the writing was going on as they made the damn movie. Well, and also how much of that was because I... I, and I know this because the damn shark wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about the shark as we get into our cast. Okay. The, because shark, the, shark, the shark is a is a cast member. Prominent cast member, I would say. Oh, sure. He's... Despite having very little screen time. <clears throat> An example of how, you know, all this stuff was getting written on the fly was Quint's USS Indianapolis speech, which okay. is like considered maybe one of the best movie speeches ever made. It went through tons of rewrites. Okay. It was first conceived by playwright Howard Sackler, who wrote The Great White Hope, the story of Jack Johnson, the boxer. Okay. Sackler worked on the screenplay for like half a second because he was an experienced scuba diver. Mm -hmm. um, but he also came up with the idea for the speech. He refused credit because he was like, I didn't, I didn't work on this movie enough to actually earn a screenplay credit. Hmm. So then John Milius, who is a friend of Spielberg... Mm -hmm. came in and extended the speech in rewriting it because they had time to kill and they needed to film shit. Yeah. So then Robert Shaw came in when Benchley and Gottlieb disagreed over where the speech was going to end up at the end. Hmm. And Robert Shaw was also a playwright. Oh, yeah. 
I forget this. So he came in, gave it a, a treatment, gave it to Gottlieb and Benchley, and they went, that's exactly what we need. Mm-hmm. And so the final speech is Robert Shaw's final writing. Hmm. Okay. It only wound up being in the film because the crew had so long while they were waiting for the shark to get fixed that Spielberg needed to keep filming. He needed to keep doing something. So they filmed that speech, and it becomes one of the greatest moments in the movie. Like, some of the greatest exchanges and dialogue were out of just pure necessity of, I gotta do something. I got a camera crew here, and I can't waste another day. Yeah. (laughs) Necessity. And goddammit, some of those are the best things in the movie. Sure. Also, per Gottlieb, You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat was not written by anyone. It was completely ad-libbed by Roy Scheider. I knew that. Slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this shit. That moment had to be extended after early previews, however, because the audience was so shocked by the shark scare Mm -hmm. that their reactions drowned out his line. So they wound up extending the scene by 35 feet of film to give them a breath to hear his line and laugh. Yeah, it's a perfect line because he is shot. It's his reaction to like, we're going to need a bigger boat. It's so good. I mean, it's, it's perfect. I mean, how often do we hear that quoted? It's the movie equivalent to Houston. We have a problem. But just that, just just the fact that he's blank stare, never looks at Quint. Cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> We're gonna need a bigger boat. You're gonna need a bigger. You're gonna boat. need a bigger boat. <laughs> and that finally gets us to our director. It's Steven Spielberg. We talked about him a lot in our last horror series with Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. But we are going to give his full credits here. For directing, Mm -hmm. because we are going to get into it. So before any of this, all throughout the late 50s and early 60s, he made home movies. Yeah. That's one thing I didn't know about him, was that he made all those home movies and things, like Sam Raimi and J.J. Abrams. That's one of those director tropes that you hear a lot now, but it's not something that I thought about Steven Spielberg when I thought about it. Okay, just the way you're talking about them, I was like, they're not the same age, No, 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 no. Then he does a bunch of TV and directs the TV thriller Duel, which is really what put him on the map for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He does a couple other TV movies, and then he makes his first feature film, The Sugarland Express. And then we have Jaws. Mm-hmm. After Jaws, buckle up. <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1941, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, Twilight Zone, the movie, the segment Kick the Can, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Color Purple, Amazing Stories, Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Always, Hook, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, AI Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds from 2005, Munich, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, The Adventures of Tintin, Warhorse, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, The BFG, The Post, Ready Player One. Coming soon, he will be doing the new adaptation of West Side Story and a film called The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara. 
I am very, very nervous about him doing West Side Story. It needs to be known. <sighs> that needs to be well documented that I'm very concerned about him doing a musical. <laughs> I'm very concerned. You're worried about maybe it turning into Cats? Tom Hooper did Cats. No. <laughs> Tom Cooper, I feel like, was drunk and said yes to something he couldn't get out of. Oh, my God. This is not that. I feel like Stephen wants to be cool, and he's not. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that's what's happening. I don't know. And I was, I'm just very much like, you better not fuck this up, and I will not forgive you. <laughs> I will not. I will not forgive you if you fuck this up. You cannot fuck up West Side Story. Let's go way back in time, though, and talk about what we think of Spielberg's directing in this movie. I mean, it's great. <laughs> it, it, no, it, it really is. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not just being nice. It's good. What do you think is so good about it, though? It's appropriately suspenseful, which it would have been so easy to give it away. Like, there's so much restraint when it comes to the shark, because that's your monster. And this is a horror movie without it being a horror movie. And this is a film that is not written as a horror film, but has to be presented like one. Because that's, that's how you, you accomplish your story. It's funny because what we consider the modern horror movie doesn't come out until the next year. Which? Carrie. Oh, okay. Because okay. Carrie has what everybody considers the first official jump scare. Even though this movie has jump scares. It does. It definitely got me a few times. <laughs> I think what's telling is that he is making really strong, bold decisions. Mm -hmm. Even though at times it feels like even just watching the movie, you get that sense of, wow, you had no other fucking choice than to do this, didn't you? Like, <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I know, I know that's true. But I feel like, you know, we've, we've had this conversation a lot, is that limits kind of force the creativity and are, is good for you. It's, it's good when you're required, you know, when you don't have thousands upon thousands of dollars at your disposal because you, you have to get more creative. When you don't have 50 takes, you, you got to get you, ha you can have to do this in one. It has to work. And when you don't have your main character is not working, we got <laughs> to make this work for us. The restraint on the buildup of using of when you see the shark, there is I can't remember when we were watching it. I said something about that, but I I liked I liked that I was like you do. There's just the right amount. Whatever was going on on set, and you know, again, we have the information that things were not easy. He problem solved well, and then when he got into the editing bay, he made it work. So whatever show what we got on film looks like specific choices were made and that is where i think is really where i have i feel like you had a director on set and you had a director in your editing bay it's interesting you mentioned that because his editor verna fields mm -hmm. got the vast majority of the credit for this film fuck yes <laughs> and this is Steven being a pissant. Of course he is. He refused to work with Verna Fields after this. And Verna Fields isn't Verna Fields the one that works with Scorsese? No. No, Ver that's Edna, blah, 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 blah. Verna Fields um, passed away about 1981. Verna Fields also worked on Paper Moon and American Graffiti. Mm. So she 
she honestly gave all the like a lot of these younger guys, especially Lucas and Spielberg, That's Lucas, yeah. an on hand. Hey. Education because American Graffiti is really great, and I think that's another case where he shot a lot of stuff and it's mm-hmm. impeccably edited. Yeah, and so yeah, so she so she has gotten a lot of credit for having edited this film together at the time. Hollywood, Hollywood said she made this movie. She made this movie, not him. And I'm and and that's where he was like, and I and, hate it. And okay, so like based on especially okay. We know he's a pissant. Okay? Yes, and this is definitely early in his career. This that tracks for him. I know. Whatever. Grow up, Stephen. Always grow, grow the fuck up. And he kind of did. I think eh, maybe. Whatever. whatever. We'll learn. We'll we'll find out. <laughs> but is- you're right. It's made in in how it all gets put together at it, the end. It it can be. It can be. There, how many movies have we watched where I'm like, I can see the good movie in here. It needs mm-hmm. a re-edit. I can see it. Can I learn Final Cut Pro and I can fix this movie, please? <laughs> I know it's in here. I can fix it. Like, it's one of those things where I, I, the artist part of me gets it. <laughs> but then the part of me that really loves doing collaborative work, it's just like, well, yeah, I want credit for my work. But at the same time, it's like, I wouldn't have the work to do that I have if I didn't have all these other people. So it's just like fuck off, Diana. Like ego, shut up. I think at the end of the day, it's it's really even more just a testament to how powerful that editing bay is. Yeah, and how it's like you can take a pile of like six hours of garbage, and if you've got a masterful editor, you can probably piece it together into something watchable. Yeah, might not be great, but you it'd can, be watchable. Or you can totally change a movie. Mm-hmm. You can totally change a comedy to a horror, like vice versa. And this, I mean, we weren't there, but that's interesting. It, it's very interesting. Again, he had to shoot the things. We know the man to be competent. Of course. <laughs> we know the man to be competent and a good problem solver. He is a good problem solver. And that is a lot about, dire- that is a lot of what directing has to be. Especially when you're making movies like this. And he does a lot of things that, he, ha- he went on to do a lot of things like this. Yeah. So this was just the first one. Steven, you're a dick, but you made a good. I don't think he's ever going to make a movie that's harder than this one was to make. And because of that, I think he is able to bring confidence and calm to sometimes pretty wild situations. Yeah, I think... That that is... I think that's fair. You know, once you've had the worst job you've ever had, (laughs) you're just like, no. And then imagine the hardest job you've ever had and the worst job you've ever had also being... A masterpiece and classic of cinema. <laughs> Hailed for what it did to movies. Well, sometimes, yeah, well, you know, yeah, sometimes it's the worst job being the best learning experience. I mean, like, I've had that with a college course. The college course I had that I hated the most, I remember every single fucking thing from that college course. Behavioral principles. I know all about B.F. Skinner and I hate it, but let me tell you. It has been helpful in my life. <laughs> so let's talk about Stephen's education on this film. Uh, I have teed you up so well, and I have not read any of your notes. I know, right? I'm a genius. Spielberg calculates that on average of a 12-hour day of filming, which it was on set, they would get about four hours of filming done in a given day. We would shoot five scenes on a good day, three on an average day, and none on a bad day. <laughs> The tracks. <laughs> it was planned for 55 days of shooting. Mm-hmm. 
it wound up 159 days with mm. the budget ballooning in proportion to that. The crew started to nickname the film Flaws. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> On top of all that, that year there was the threat of an actor strike through the guild. So he is the most stressed he's ever been in his life. Sure. Apparently he spent nights not sleeping in his log cabin out in Martha's Vineyard where they filmed this, stressing about all the rumors floating that he was going to be pulled from the project and he would never have a job again because of the disaster the movie was turning into. He actually brought a pillow from LA to sleep with and kept a celery stalk under the pillow because the smell relaxed him. Which at a certain point, when you have hit double the time you planned on making this movie, whatever it fucking takes. Yeah. He attributes a lot of the problems to his perfectionism and inexperience. Self-reflection. Quote, I could have shot the movie in the tank or even in a protected lake somewhere, but it wouldn't have looked the same. And I was naive about the ocean, basically. I was pretty naive about Mother Nature and the hubris of a filmmaker who thinks he can conquer the elements was foolhardy, but I was too young to know it was being foolhardy when I demanded that we shoot the film in the Atlantic Ocean and not in a North Hollywood tank. Yep. He's, he's like, we gotta do it for real. And then, you know, halfway through, you're like, oh, fuck, why did I do this? Because I will say, he probably could have pulled this off and made it look just as good. Oh, I'm sure. On a soundstage. But it's just not the same. No. And and he's, I'm, I mean, some of those shots, you need the right beach line. It works. It just works. You just, you need the right beach line. As Richard Dreyfus noted, quote, we started filming without a script, without a cast, and without a shark, unquote. I love you, Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> You're such a dick, but in a fun way. Uh, but, it, but in that way where I'm like, I still want to hang out with you. Yeah, pretty much. The movie was filmed on Eastman film stock, which was used throughout the 70s because it was so cheap. Um, but because this movie was so popular and shown so much, it faded so quickly that Jaws had to be colorized for home video in 1985, despite the fact that it had been 10 years since it had been released and it was filmed in color. <laughs> they filmed at Martha's Vineyard precisely because even 12 miles out into the ocean, the sandy bottom at Martha's Vineyard was only about 30 feet down. That was going to allow them to have the shark function and be far enough away from the beach to get that isolated ocean shot. That was one of Steven's biggest things. He wanted you to not be able to see land from the boat. Because to him, if you could see land, everything was ruined. Yeah, I could see this like, oh, that's your safety net. He basically, it was like, if the audience sees land, they're going to think, well, they can just go back anytime. Yeah, no, no, I get that. But like, if they're all the way out they're... at sea... There's yeah. no escape. There's, yeah, they're too close to see another boat. It's too close. Like, the, someone's coming to rescue them. No, I get that. That's fair. It's, yeah. It's so, fair. yeah, they were, able to, they were able to push way out, but still not have to go too deep, and the shark could still function out in the water. Sure. They cut pre-production short to take advantage of what was unseasonably great weather out at Martha's Vineyard. Okay. And as soon as they got there, the weather turned horrible. Mm. Started raining like crazy. So then they had to start shooting without a finalized script because they had to cut pre-pro short. So Spielberg and Gottlieb would finish shooting after the 12-hour day and then immediately work on hammering the script out to try to get it up to, up to snuff. 
per Carl Gottlieb, quote, there was nothing to do except make the movie, unquote. Yep. And I should say, Gottlieb's quotes that came from IMDb, he wrote an entire book about making Jaws on his own. Oh, yeah. And like, there's so many different documentaries, but he himself wrote a book about writing it. They were all overworked, and Gottlieb wasn't even in the trenches with the crew. He would he didn't have to be on set all the time. Mm-hmm. But the crew became like legit sea dogs. Per Gottlieb, they would arrive from work, quote, ravaged and sunburnt, windblown and covered with salt water, unquote. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Damn. Like they were, it was like they were actually fucking sailors out in the middle of the ocean trying to make this fucking thing. Yeah. That's what would happen. Martha's Vineyard's residents got $64, $310 in today's money to run screaming on the beaches extras. And there are a couple of actual Martha's Vineyard's residents, one of whom is Mrs. Kintner, who slaps Brody. Uh, she was a local. And there's some other locals that we'll talk about as well. Mm-hmm. As filming dragged on, though, Martha's Vineyard's, all the people in Martha's Vineyard got super fed up with the film staying there too long. And just overrunning their town, trying to film shit. Quint's house in Martha's Vineyard was built on an abandoned lot. But there was a lot of shenanigans going on. Like, they they thought they had the ability to do it. And then the town, at some point, said, no, you can't do this. You can't use the lot. And they were going to be like, you can't build anything here. You have to leave it exactly as it is. Okay. So somebody got a hold of them and said, okay, here's the deal. Build your set. Because they can't give you a cease and desist within about 60 days because of town ordinances. Okay. So they did it, but they had to replace the lot. They had to tear down the set and replace the lot exactly as it had been down to the litter that was on the site. Okay. Because that was the agreement. Otherwise, they would be violating (laughs) that term of not using that lot, which is bonkers okay (laughs) i get that steven had a completely different idea for introducing the shark at the start of the movie originally it was going to be at the dock instead of the beach the harbor master would be watching television and then behind him we would see a row of boats rising and falling in the sea as the shark swam underneath them Hmm. he figured the the boats moving up and down would give the audience the perspective of how big this fucking shark was. Okay. But the logistics were way too difficult to get right. He couldn't get the boats to rise and fall in the well, same, same interval sure. to make it look like the shark was moving. Mm-hmm. And the fucking shark wouldn't work. That fucking shark doesn't work. So they wound up shelving that and went with Chrissy getting pulled under instead. See, and I think that is way scarier. Chrissy's scene is fucking terrifying i I love it like i hadn't seen this movie i had just seen the clips and then when i finally watched it that's the intro and they don't really show that scene very much because it's fucking scary they don't really show you anything but it just happens and it's which is great like it's a great introduction to like fuck and like you can totally see how that could happen to anybody and like yeah like and the thing about that is you can totally see why a town like this, it's totally plausible. That's the thing that I love about this problem. And until until the kid gets snatched off the beach, then it's just like, no. <laughs> like, no. Then we're like, no, now, now this is not acceptable. Yeah, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. It's one of the most amazing moments is that moment in the hospital where Brody's 
looks like he's about to go punch the mayor in the face. And then all of a sudden he has to stop because the guy goes, my kids were there too. Town's best interest. That's right. You were acting in town's best interest. And that's why you're going to do the right thing. That's why you're going to sign this and we're going to pay that guy what he wants. Martin. Martin. My kids. Well, that beats true. When you realize that he's panicking, that like my kids were there too, and he still doesn't want to close the beaches, but it's like my my kids could have it could have been my kid, it could have been my kid, it could have been my kid. Like yeah, like you kind of see like oh I have to face the consequences of my actions. Everyone is human in this movie, even if they might be the most dick version of themselves. There is basic level humanity there. Even Quint, who is a cartoon character still has a lot of humanity in him because of what he's had to suffer and live through. He's just drunk. (laughs) It happens. Spielberg admitted he got greedy after seeing the preview reaction to the shark jumping from Brody's head behind Mm -hmm. him. Mm. So he decided to add the severed head in the boat as one more jump scare. I agree. You did get greedy. He learned something about that. That originally before he added that scene the shark jumping from behind brody got Mm -hmm. the biggest reaction Mm -hmm. but then every subsequent time the head got a bigger reaction and the shark jumping out was less of a big scare for everyone Mm -hmm. and he said that taught him you really only get one big jump scare per movie i don't think that's true i think they just can't be close together at all and this is also for a guy making a blockbuster like Spielberg, because horror yeah. movie directors know how to ebb and flow the pa- tension that way. Them, sure. But for him, it was like, you only get that one shot because the audience is going to be on guard the rest of the time. Yeah. And so he that that's for him. He's just like, you get one big chance at it. You can have little ones, but that's it. You really only get that one thing. Yep. He shot most of the third part of the film handheld to counter the swell of the ocean. And he would often joke that Jaws is the most expensive handheld film ever made. That's fair. He intentionally shot 25% of the film at water level to get that feeling that the audience was treading water. That's a very common thing of him changing the level where he moved the camera, which is a a staple of him. He did it later in E.T. Yeah. Doing everything at three feet high. And it's terrifying. (laughs) because Especially in like that second shark sequence at the beach. Because you keep going back and forth between above the water, below the water, above the water, below the water. And then the sound editing to when you go below the water, the sound cuts. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're so good. (laughs) His cinematographer, Bill Butler, who also did The Conversation, Grease, and Rocky 2, 3, and 4. Wow. Which we would be very familiar with. Love Rocky. I need to go rewatch them. He created equipment that allowed the marine underwater shooting to occur. Okay, cool. So they built a rig to keep the camera stable regardless of the tide. And he also built a sealed submersible camera box in order to get underwater shots. That's awesome. When filming was finally complete, Spielberg said, quote, my next picture won't be on dry land. There won't even be a bathroom scene, unquote. True to his word, Close Encounters does not involve water in any way, although there are a couple of bathroom scenes in it. On the final day of filming, the crew planned to celebrate by throwing Spielberg into the ocean, which, fair. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 158 days, gotta get some kind of release. I I think that's fair. Spielberg got wind of the prank 
and wore his best leather slash suede outfit to try to avoid it. (laughs) He also, and this is genius, he arranged a boat to take him to the final shot on his own. (laughs) So he could escape. He had a car waiting with his luggage inside of it. He lined up the shot, got it all ready, and then gave it over to his assistant directors, had the guy take the boat over to the dock, got in the car, drove to his hotel, got to Boston, and got on the plane to LA. He didn't even see the final shot. As he sped away in the boat, he shouted, quote, that's a wrap, I shall not return, unquote. (laughs) It gets better. Okay, I'll let you continue, because I have thoughts. (laughs) On the way to Boston, he was on a flight with Richard Dreyfus because the last shot was the shark blowing up. Sure. So he was headed home. Sure. Dreyfus got with him and was like, oh, hey, how'd the last shot go? Stephen smirked and then went, they're shooting it now. Dreyfus lost his shit and laughed hysterically. <laughs> okay. On the one hand. Way to say, fuck you, motherfuckers. You ain't getting me. (laughs) But also, be a good sport. I love putting on your best suede suit. That's fucking hilarious. (laughs) But be a good sport. Like, I I love all of the pomp and circumstance of doing all that. And then you let them dunk you. You let them do it. It's just, it's like the Gatorade dunking on the coach. That's, they've earned that. That's what the team gets to do to the coach. I don't know, man. Like. Here's the thing. <laughs> like, he one up them really well. I, as a crew member, would be like, I'm not even mad. No, that's, that's fucking, fucking funny. Genius. That's fucking hilarious. <laughs> I agree. I agree. However, from a, in the spirit of teamwork, the attitude should be, like, I'm not mad, but, like, the attitude should be, y'all have earned this, so I'm going to show up in my best outfit so y'all can really enjoy this. I'm gonna make y'all think this, and I'm gonna make I'm gonna make this great for y'all. <sighs> Some more reason why he might have not been such a good sport. When he got to Boston the night before he flew back to LA, he had a full mini nervous breakdown coming down from all of the stress and anxiety. He had nightmares for weeks that he was still on the ocean making the movie after he was done. And this wasn't just stress because he slept on a waterbed at home. <laughs> So it kept reminding him of being at sea. Like, on the one hand, I want to feel bad for him. But at the same time, it's like, dude, there's a part of me that's like, okay, I feel bad for you. But uh, like the stress, like you need to come down off of the stress of the movie. But it's it's like, no. Because it, I would normally be like, yeah, it's that making this for six months. I know he's still a dick. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. But I, as a person who deal with anxiety, is like, no, I could see that happening to me. Oh, same. If I had to spend six months doing this, and then I got home, and oh, shit, I'm in a waterbed, so now every time I sleep, it reminds me of being on the ocean, and oh, God, I'm still there. (laughs) I I, I do understand it. I do. I'm not unsympathetic, but I'm also like, "Mm." And I just, I think until he got to that editing bay, I think he felt like they're never going to let me make a movie again. They're never going to do it. Mm. And then it turned out, no, that wasn't the case at all, man. (laughs) 
He has long lamented that he didn't take control of this franchise as he did with Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park, because as with Poltergeist, all the subsequent films after this dipped in quality. And in fact, the latest entries of Poltergeist and Jaws are considered some of the worst movies ever made. Jaws the Revenge is widely is on the list as one of maybe like the top 10 worst movies, just Mm. bar none. (laughs) And he's like, I wish I had taken on the production of those because maybe I could have done something cool with them. Maybe I could have like kept them on on the rails. Maybe. We do have a who could have been better. For director? Yes. It is a no-name. It is Dick Richards. He made the Culpepper Cattle Company, which is like his biggest name. It's notable because in his first meeting with executives, he said his opening shot would come out of the water to show the town, then a whale emerging from the water. The producers looked at him. Benchley was looking at him and said, we're not making Moby Dick, and we're not hiring somebody who doesn't know what a fucking shark is. He didn't know that it was about a shark. No, he didn't read the script. And that gets us to our cast. Now, a note about the casting. Neither Hooper nor Quint were cast up to nine days before production began. Damn. They did not have anything ready. Nope. (sighs) We start with Roy Scheider as Sheriff Brody. Before this, he does a lot of television and one-off little movies. And Mm -hmm. then he is in Clute. The French Connection, which we've talked about Mm -hmm. on this show. The Assassination, The Outside Man, and The Seven Ups. After this, Marathon Man, Sorcerer, Jaws 2, All That Jazz, Still of the Night, Blue Thunder, 2010, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, 52 Pickup, Naked Lunch, Romeo is Bleeding, Sequest 2032. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's where we all knew him from in the 90s. The Rainmaker, the narrator of the television series Nova. And 2004's The Punisher. What do we think of Roy Scheider in this movie? He's great. I mean, he's the concerned parent, a competent lawman who's just trying to get the the government man to to get on board. He's really good. He feels real. He feels genuinely fucking concerned. Well, he's the straight man for the movie. Yeah. Which is good. He's never too big. The only time where he gets really big is at the end when he's trying, like, come on, show it, show it, show it. Because he's just like, I'm fucking done with this goddamn shark. <laughs> but that's the point, like, that's the point that you've pushed him to. Yeah. Which makes sense. Like, it's a very natural progression. And so character wise, he's perfect. He's very even toned. You know, his concern is appropriate. Yeah, he's great. And funny. Low key. But, like, he gets his little moments of, like, sarcastic digs. Yeah, like, just, yeah, no. he's He he does that thing where it's, like, especially when he gets on the boat, they kind of start talking to him like he's this bumbling idiot. And it's just like, no, I've just not been on a boat before. Like, this is not my thing. And then you just, he starts making these little comments where you're like, I'm paying attention, assholes. <laughs> so that's great. Like, so that's, he, he he's like, I'm still, like, fully here and competent. I'm just new at he has some epic level side eye in this movie too it's pretty, it's pretty good um <laughs> the real housewives would be proud he was cast off the strength of his performance in the french connection he wasn't a real known actor in any big way so mm-hmm. they were a little wary but he agreed to a three-picture deal with universal the last of which became jaws 2 okay 
He got interested in making the movie after hearing Steven talk with another writer about having a shark jump on a boat for a film and was like, that sounds like fun. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. Yep. In the scene with Mrs. Kintner, those slaps were not staged oh, okay. because Lee Fierro was a local, not a trained actress. Oh, okay. And she could not get a fake slap. Hmm. So Scheider had to endure 17 of the, quote, most painful, unquote, takes of his career. Fierro stated that in at least one of those takes, his glasses flew off. Because oh. she was just going for it. Well, you know, <laughs> you know sometimes you got to take a slap. I get it. It's just like, whoo, 17. That is a lot. That's a lot. Not a lot compared to how many takes it took to get the orca to sink. At the end of the film, mm. that took 75 takes to get all of the angles right. Rude. Scheider did not trust the crew to rescue him if there was an emergency, so he hid axes and hatchets all throughout the cabin just in case he had to smash his way out. You know what? That's a smart man. <laughs> That's just looking out for yourself. That's a man who spent nearly six months on Martha's Vineyard and is like, I don't trust these guys with my life. I I respect them. They're good guys. Some of y'all are idiots. But no, man. Who could have been better? Hmm. Charlton Heston. No. He was the original choice for this film. I fully understand that choice. For like a movie star name. For a movie star name. For that role. But that would have been so stern. Especially the the way Richard Dreyfuss plays Hooper. It's perfection. It's most it's the most perfect reading of that role ever. Heston could not play off of that ever. Yeah, you think I couldn't play off of that? No, it would come off so bad. And then off of Shaw's Quint? Uh uh-uh. uh. No. That mix would not work in any way, shape, or form. Scheider's just so fucking cool. And and you can look at Scheider and go, Dad. Yeah. Heston is just like mean dad. <laughs> Angry. Angry Moses, Dad. It's very Dirty Harry. Yeah, it's getting too close to Dirty Harry as opposed to like, Dad. Well, also, Charlton Heston was such a known quantity. Sure. At that point, Heston had just come off of making Airport 75 and Earthquake as one of the main save the day characters. There was this whole string of disaster movies in the 70s. Oh, okay. And he was one of these go-to leads for these movies. Okay, so it's like. Why would we put him in another one? Well, Spielberg decided if you cast Heston, the audience would immediately think the shark had zero chance. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want that. I want people to think the sharks might fucking win this thing. I'm here for that. Heston was reportedly so pissed about it that he talked shit about Steven for like a year and vowed never to work with him. And he backed up on this. Stephen offered him a role in 1941 and Heston refused it. Heston is such a dick. He's the worst. He's one of the fucking worst Hollywood human beings. And I say that with Ronald Reagan being way up at the top. But like, Heston's bad fucking news. Heston is such a dick. Ugh. Now here's two who aren't dicks. Okay. Also, who could have been better? Gene Hackman. Okay. And Robert Duvall. I'm guessing no to Gene Hackman because of Roy Schneider. In part. Well, there's no there's no stuff about it. It's just that they were considered. But like Gene Hackman also has a sort of wild energy that doesn't work for Brody at all. Not for Brody. He could have done really good with the Quint role. He also could have done really well with Hooper. It would no. be different, but he could have. I wouldn't have liked that. But Robert Duvall 
all day long could do this. He could, but I'm still sticking with Schneider. I like Ray Schneider. Schneider. It's, it's I know. real hard. There's no N. He's really I tricky. I know. There's no N, but I want to say it. It's Next there. up, we have Robert Shaw as Quint. We've talked about him several times. Oh, we've talked about him quite a few times. Twice. Before this, he had lots of period fare and theater for television. Theater for television. The Guest, Harold Pinter's play. From Russia with Love. He was blonde in that movie. That's why it's weird. Uh-huh. And his name is Red. It's so fucking weird. Battle of the Bulge, A Man for All Seasons. The Birthday Party, also Harold Pinter. Battle of Britain, Young Winston. The Sting. That's the one where he limped. Oh, so good. And the taking of Pelham 123, the 1974 version. After this, he was in Robin and Marion, Black Sunday, another disaster movie, The Deep, another Peter Benchley movie about the ocean, and Force 10 from Navarone. What do we think of Robert Shaw in this movie? This is the favorite, my favorite thing that I've seen him in. Wow. Cause I, okay, because I remember being very lukewarm on him on The Sting. Like, I really didn't care about him in The Sting. And then as Rush to Love, I actually really liked him, but I wanted... I wanted. He's not doing very much other than like, being... Like, I wanted in, more of him. He's just intimidating. Exactly. Like, I wanted more of him yeah. in that, but I liked what he was doing in it. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite performance of him because everything I did like about him in those other two films, which he's featured heavily in those films um, and are also considered great performances by him, I'm just like... No, this is this is what he's good at. This is him like doing his good job. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than three thousand bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. And you gotta make up your minds. You wanna stay alive and ante up? You wanna play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. I don't want no volunteers, I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. This is full theatrical acting. And yet, that speaks to the writing of Quint and but how it, they got all that right, was that he's doing all that presentational style. Yeah. He's playing a Falstaff-like he's, character. He's not showy. And it never feels it's, it's weird. It's not showy. I never feel like he's trying to pull focus. Like I never feel like his character is trying to get the attention of the audience. Mm-mm. Like, you know, when you're, when you're, um, you're watching an SNL sketch and you've got that one person who's always pulling focus. Yeah. His character could so easily be that. Yep. In every single scene. And I will say the same thing for Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. Same thing. Completely different flavor. Same thing. Because this movie is not about them. No. It's, it's about, about Brody. Fucking sh- well, it's about Brody. But it's about the fucking shark. Exactly. I'm very pro. I'm pro Robert Shaw. And then also that speech. That speech is just, um, you can't look away from him. You really can't. Oh, I could. I didn't like the speech. Oh, I love that speech. I don't give two shits about that speech. <sighs> Not true at all to what happened I, on the USS Indianapolis, which is a harrowing fucking story. But like, I... That was the one, honestly, that was the one moment that I was like, I get what y'all are trying to do. I don't give two shits. <laughs> honestly, the best part of the movie is when they're doing those fucking barrels and he's sitting out on the mast the, and looking the, at him like. 
You that fucking to, landlubbers. That to me was more like telling of who these characters were and their connection to each other. That scene of them drinking was more of just like, I liked the like comparing the scars. That part was fun. But then like the speech was just very, like it's very well delivered, but I'm just like, for me, it really slowed down the movie. Mm, I love it. I love it. I know why people love it. I don't. The producers had just worked with him on The Sting, and they recommended him after other actors declined. Cool. Which we will get into. Okay. He wasn't thrilled to take on the role, but he was urged by his wife and secretary to take the role. Okay. Quote, the last time they were that enthusiastic was from Russia with Love, and they were right. Oh, well, (laughs) it's like, oh, well, you were right about that, so I should do this. However, Shaw was a raging alcoholic. I knew, I I knew that. I I know, I know about this part of the whole thing, and that caused a lot of tension. Per Roy Scheider, he was quote a perfect gentleman whenever he was sober. All he needed was one drink, and then he turned into a competitive son of a bitch. Unquote. Mm-hmm. Gottlieb related a story where at one point Shaw took a drink between takes and then announced to everyone, "I wish I could quit drinking." And Richard Dreyfus grabbed his glass and tossed it into the ocean to everyone's shock. And surprise, we'll get into that when we get to Dreyfus, because there's also a lot about them. Again, I know Richard Dreyfus is a dick. Robert Shaw out fucking dicked him in this movie. But Richard Dreyfus is the kind of dick that I want to hang out with, mm-hmm. where he's like, you're being an asshole. Well, you're being an asshole for this reason. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Like, it's, he's a dick, usually with a cause. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Shaw's just an angry drunk. He's an angry drunk, which is unfortunate. It's, and it, and it's sad, because it seemed like if he wasn't drinking, he was a reasonable and very nice man. Totally. And he just had a big fucking problem. Alcoholism is a disease. He actually attempted that USS Indianapolis speech while drunk, because the scene was calling for them to be drinking. Mm. The take was completely unusable. Mm. And late that evening, Shaw called Spielberg and begged him to get another chance to read it. He came in the next day, nailed it in one take, completely sober. Well, that's good. So he had at least enough self-awareness to be like, I fucked that and I'm not going to do it. Especially when I wrote the fucking thing. To know that like, I, yeah, Yeah. it's just, I mean. It's just sad. It's just sad. It's sad. It's sad to know somebody has those demons and just is, cannot get away from them it, it is it's very sad his ribbing of mrs Brody on the dock doing the little quote of here lies the body of mary lee oh, geez, this isn't no boy scout picnic so you got your rubbers <laughs> here lies the body of mary lee died at the age of 103 for 15 years she kept her virginity not a bad record for this vicinity he was prompted by Spielberg to just give him something to mess with Mrs. Brody to make her walk away, be annoyed. So after he does this, they ask him, okay, well, where do we get the rights and release for this? Because they assumed it was from like some book of poems or something. And Shaw said, yeah, you're not likely to get that because it's on an old grave I found in Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Robert Shaw earned zero dollars for this movie because the IRS was chasing him for tax evasion. So he was constantly moving back and forth between the U.S., Canada, and Ireland to avoid getting nailed down for too long and be forced to pay tax penalties. In fact, if he was in the U.S. for a certain amount of time while filming, he had a giant tax liability. So on his days off, they flew him to Canada and then would fly him back to reset the clock on how long he was in the States. Yeah, 
It was a big fucking deal in the 70s. Like, I remember hearing about the Rolling Stones making Exile on Main Street, and, like, the whole thing was made in Paris because they were fleeing tax evasion in Britain. Like, <laughs> celebrities didn't pay their fucking taxes in the 70s. I don't, what the, I don't know what the fuck was going on, man. Yeah, well, our presidents don't pay them here in the 2020s, so. <sighs> I'm not bitter. Yeah, but they find legal ways to do it, at least. Jeez. These guys were just like, no. And then I was like, cool, we're going to arrest you. Okay, bye. <laughs> Shaw bases performance off of cast member Craig Kingsbury, who played Ben Gardner, the fisherman, whose head we find severed in a okay. fishing boat. Kingsbury was an actual local. He was a fisherman, farmer, and a wild eccentric. Spielberg described Kingsbury as, quote, the purest version of who, in my mind, Quint was. So some of his sayings and one-liners were so effective on them that they wound up like, talking to him, recording him, and using his stuff for Quint. That's cool. And there's another person that's that's in and around Martha's Vineyard that also inspired Quint, but we'll get into that when we get to trivia. Who could have been better for Quint? Lee Marvin. That was Steven's first choice, despite having reservations with including big names, which I'm like, you got Robert Shaw. He's also a big fucking name. Yeah, but but where he put Robert Shaw isn't in a big position. That's true. So uh, you, you just got to be careful with it. Marvin thanked him, but stated he'd rather go fishing. Fair. Also a wild alcoholic. God. Who could have been better? Sterling Hayden, who you might recognize as, or as Ripper from Dr. Strangelove. No, I've purged that movie from my head. Sterling Hayden's a great character actor, but Hayden was also in trouble with the IRS for unpaid tax. His income was subject to IRS levy. However, he was a writer and his literary work was not subject to levy. So the plan was when they were going to cast him that they were going to pay him union scale for his acting job and buy a story for him for a giant sum that would be his actual payment for acting. Their advisors said, the IRS is going to see right the fuck through that. No. <laughs> I mean, like, this is type of shit that, like, nowadays you have to have a credit report before you can work for certain places. Yeah. <laughs> like, these are the types of behaviors why why we have some of that. It's so ridiculous. But, like, I mean, like, it's, it's uh, like, way different industries, but, like, seriously. At oh. least at least all they had to do with Shaw was fly him over to Canada every couple of weeks or so and then bring him back. Uh, anyway, after Hayden fell through, that's when the producers were like, hey, we like Robert Shaw. Why don't you just go get him? Now we get to our favorite asshole, Richard Dreyfus, playing Hooper. Before this, he did television, some uncredited roles in Valley of the Dolls and The Graduate. And then he was in Dillinger and American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. After this, we will see him again very soon, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm -hmm. The Goodbye Girl, Whose Life Is It Anyway, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Stand By Me, Ten Men, Stake Out, Nuts, Let It Ride, Always, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, Postcards from the Edge, What About Bob, Lost in Yonkers, Another Stake Out, The American President, Mr. Holland's Opus, James and the Giant Peach, Krippendorf's Tribe, The Education of Max Bickford on Television, Poseidon, W, Piranha 3D, Red, and Madoff. What do we think of Richard Dreyfus in this movie? He's my favorite part of the movie. He's the best part of the movie. He really is. This movie is cruising along. Like, this is kind of a fun thriller. And then you bring him in and it was like, well, all bets are fucking off. 
We got a wild, crazy scientist dude I mean, in the middle. Well, but he's not wild and crazy. He he does act as a lot of comic relief, but he does also do a lot of grounding because he validates the sheriff's concern. Yeah. He and it's just and also points out that, hey, mayor dude, you're an idiot. That autopsy scene is so good. It's great. Or Asurus Glaucus. Now the enormous amount of tissue loss prevents any detailed analysis. However, the attacking squalus must be considerably larger than any normal squalus found in these waters. Didn't you get on a boat and check out these waters? No. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. It's, it's great. Just because of all of a sudden him getting, one, disgusted that he's looking at such an atrocious injury. Sure. And then two, how much of a like, what the fuck are you people thinking? This is a nightmare. Yeah. And then you just, have a killer shark. Yeah, you have a killer shark. And then just like, and then like the whole, like the wrestling that he's clearly having to do is like, we have to kill the shark because it's killing humans. But also the whole, like, I don't want to kill the shark because I want to study the shark because I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. You can see that fight going on in, inside himself, which is great. And then, you know, and then he makes snide remarks, which is just, I'm always here for. I'm always here for the snide remarks. The wildness isn't in, like, any of his acting or his delivery. It's just in the energy that he has. He feels like he's on, like, five cups of coffee every time you see him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he's just twitching, which is perfect just because he's got all this nervous energy and then it's compounded by, holy shit, this is the biggest shark we've ever dealt with. Mm-hmm. He's really great. And again, it's the blend of those three together once you get on that boat mm-hmm. that just works perfectly. <laughs> he originally passed on the film saying it was a film he would love to watch but not to make. But his role right before hadn't screened so well, so he we went back and asked very politely if he could have his role back. And Dreyfus and Shaw had an incredibly contentious relationship on set of this movie. Sure. Shaw in particular treated Dreyfus incredibly cruelly while he was drunk. In private, Shaw was actually sometimes really nice to him. He actually read Dreyfus one of his plays in its entirety while they were between shots in the hold of the orca. Mm. So when it was like one-on-one, he was perfectly nice. And he wasn't drunk. When he was filming... And I don't know if some of this was blending character with his his alcoholism. He was brutal. He said he thought Dreyfus would only have a career, quote, if there's room for another Jewish character, man, like Paul Muni, which is anti-Semitic as shit. Yeah. Especially because Paul Muni played the lead in the film about the Dreyfus affair. And Richard Dreyfus is a distant relative yeah. of Albert Dreyfus. Yeah. <sighs> that was meant to be a- Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no, no. That was totally a big, giant anti-Semitic insult. Yeah, that's a, that's a big fuck you. At one point, he dared Dreyfus to climb the top of the orca's mast, 75 feet high, and jump into the ocean, calling him a coward because he wouldn't do it. He kept escalating the amount of money he'd pay him, saying he'd give him up to $1,000 after each insult. Steven Spielberg had to finally stop Dreyfus from doing it. And saying, quote, I don't care how much money he offers you, you're not jumping off the mast, not in my movie. <laughs> Shaw taunted him for being out of shape, saying he couldn't do 10 full push-ups. Dreyfus, pissed as all hell, said, I can do 20. So Shaw said, fine, do it. And then said he was going to have Scheider, who was a former professional boxer, mm-hmm. judge whether or not he did them correctly. 
when Shaw finally walked away, Scheider went over to him and was like, I know only a handful of people who can do 20 perfect push-ups. You're not one of them. Don't. (laughs) (sighs) There is a very sweet ending to the story, though. Mm -hmm. In 2014, Richard Dreyfuss appeared on Irish television, Mm -hmm. and in the audience was Robert Shaw's 14-year-old granddaughter. Mm. Dreyfuss teared up and got visibly moved and stated that it was very contentious, but he had such respect for Robert Shaw as an actor. Mm. Like, he really knew his work and thought he was great. And it was only, you know, three or four years after this that Robert Shaw passed away. So I I think it's one of those things where he was like, I understood what was happening. I hate it. I also have massive respect for well, this it's man. One of things, it's like, I know he's an alcoholic. I know where this is coming from. It's just, it, it's it's a shame that he had such horrible demons. And it's a shame too that it was like, and he, you were the target of it. Yeah. Like, I was the one who got shat on for it. Yeah. But like, I still respected him. We so. have a lot of who could have been better. Oh, interesting. Jeff Bridges. Interesting. Timothy Bottoms. John Voight. Ew, no. Jan Michael Vincent. I don't know who that is. Pretty boy. Joel Gray. Interesting. Kevin Klein. Of course. Kevin Klein was actually offered the role. Wow. At one point. And he said he knew an actual oceanographer, so he thought he could figure out how to play one. Sure. And then Spielberg. Oh my God, this is such a Spielberg thing. Uh-huh. Quote, I don't want someone who knows someone who is an oceanographer. I want someone who is, is an, an oceanographer. oceanographer. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> fuck off. And also, Dustin Hoffman has said that he was offered a role in Jaws. Presumably, it, it would have been this role. It would have been this position. <sighs> Joel Gray or Kevin Klein sound real fun. They do. I mean, I, I mean, I always go for Kevin Klein whenever there's an option. I love Kevin <laughs> Klein with all my heart. And uh, if you want a really fun pairing, Peter Benchley, for his part, wanted the trio to be Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and Steve McQueen. No reports on who. And I was like, no, no, that trio does not work for this fucking movie. No, that's a buddy. That's a buddy. That's a buddy adventure. <laughs> Do not get me wrong. I like at least two or three of those actors. And I've seen some Steve McQueen and he's pretty fucking great. Those guys are all the same. They do the same thing. Paul Newman and Robert Redford, you can set aside because they've got good chemistry. But like. They're adorable together. That's fine. But no. No. (laughs) That's not what you want for this movie. You need three dudes who hate each other. If we learn nothing else from the the making of this movie, Peter Benchley is garbage. Okay. But now. Now I want a parody version of this movie made with Will Ferrell. Uh? John C. Riley. Hmm. And Steve Who's the third? That is it for our main cast. So that brings us to our pawns. We start with Lorraine Gary playing Ellen Brody. She would stick around for Jaws 2, but she was also married to MCA president Sid Scheinberg, who campaigned for her casting. Oh, okay. Funny enough, Richard Zanuck, the producer of Jaws, wanted his wife, Linda Harrison, who is famous as the main romantic lead in Planet of the Apes, to be in this movie. But because Scheinberg trumped him, Zanuck instead got her in Airport 1975. Oh, okay. And Marty McFly's mother is named after Lorraine Gary. Oh, okay. We have Murray Hamilton playing Vaughn. He is a longtime character actor, maybe best known as Mr. Robinson in The Graduate. Mr. Okay. Uh-huh. He was Steven Spielberg's only first choice 
only first that got cast in this movie and the only actor ever considered to play this role Hmm. he's very good as the mayor so i mean i mean he's i mean he's an ass but like i get it spielberg knew what he wanted yeah i'm pleased and happy to repeat the news that we have in fact caught and killed a large predator that supposedly injured some bathers but as you see it's a beautiful day the beaches are open and the people are having a wonderful time Jeffrey Kramer playing Hendrix. This sheriff guy shows up in Jaws 2, but he also executive produced The Practice and Ally McBeal. Okay. Doing dedicated ADR, Harry Shearer, Michael McKeon, and Howard Hessman from WKRP in Cincinnati. Wow. (laughs) That is uh, surprising. They are not seen in the movie, but this is the first film to use dedicated ADR voices. They would normally just use canned noise. Okay. Also, writer Carl Gottlieb appears as Meadows in the movie, one of the mayor's flunkies. He also has some roles in The Jerk, Johnny Dangerously, and he played the priest in Clueless. Oh, okay. And a little fun weird story about this, because he's writing this whole thing. They originally filmed the whole gardener and the boat sequence during daytime, and Meadows was going to accompany our two leads, so Carl Gottlieb was going to be on the boat. While he was miming tying a rope between his boat and the fishing boat, he fell overboard and came very close to getting decapitated by the boat propellers. Oh. And so he was in the very interesting position of, after that accident, deciding to rewrite the scene and shoot it at night, which means he had to actually kill his own character from parts of the script. That's ridiculous. I love it. Spielberg also nearly died at sea, and Dreyfus almost got stuck in the cage underwater. Oh, okay. Lots of fun going on there. Sure. No major injuries, though, mm-hmm. so I'm going to call it a win. Yeah. Peter Benchley plays the interviewer on the beach, the very smarmy gentleman that is bespectacled. Okay. And Steven Spielberg has two roles in this film. Mm-hmm. He is an Amity Point life station worker, so he's the guy blowing the whistle. Okay. And if you think about it, you're like, that does look like a young Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And also, he is the voice talking to the orca when Ellen Brody is trying to reach her husband on the boat. Okay. And we get to our final main cast member, because there is one more cast member that must be discussed. Okay. And that is Bruce. Oh, yes. Bruce the shark. Okay. What did you think of Bruce in this movie? Well, you know, I know there's some backstage antics and, you know, I mean, I know a decent amount about the shark. Yeah. And nowadays it would just be a really weird combination of live footage, CGI, and then something mechanical. Yeah. Which is fine. And I think Steven really has made his mark with animatronics. Oh my gosh. I mean, if you look at the animatronics, even the animatronics from Jurassic Park hold up today. They really, truly do. They're gorgeous. And the animatronics in this movie hold up slightly. Slightly. There's there's an element of cheesiness to them. Yeah. And it's just because of the dating, but it doesn't matter because of how they're used. So I think Bruce is quite is is used quite phenomenally. It it comes back to that edit that they masterfully edited it. So that you never got a good look at the guts of that shark. Well, you didn't get too close because you don't, you know, it's the whole Wizard of Oz thing. I don't need to see behind the curtain. You just need enough perspective to be like, that thing is fucking gigantic. Yeah, you just need you just need a scope of the scale and then you're, much. you're good. 
Well, the shark was named after Spielberg's lawyer, which is on the nose, little buddy. Like, come on. I hate you and I hate this thing. So <laughs> that's your name. That's I'm not mad about that. During pre-production, Spielberg and his friends Marty Scorsese, George Lucas, and John Milius went to the effects shop to check out the shark. Okay. Lucas, being the nerd that he is, had to go stick his head inside the mouth to see how it worked. Again, this makes total sense. John Milius and Steven Spielberg snuck over to the controls and decided to make the jaw clamp down on Lucas. Of course they did. As a prank. Because of course they did. Except the jaws malfunctioned. Of course they did. And Lucas got stuck in the shark. Of course he did. Which turned out to be very prophetic of the further issues that would come up later in filming. Yeah, I feel like you deserve that. (laughs) When Spielberg and Milius finally got Lucas free, they all ran away from the workshop, scared shitless that they damaged the shark. Yeah, I know that thing wasn't cheap. Oh, we're about to get there because there are three different versions made for different functions for this shark. Makes total sense. There's a sea sled shark, which is a full bodied shark with a missing belly. So that's you can see the top of it. Sure. And they towed that with a 300 foot line so they could roll it around the the ocean. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Then they had two platform sharks, one for moving left to right and one for moving right to left with the submerged side being open so they could get access to the mechanics. Sure. Each shark cost $250,000. That doesn't sound like a lot. In 1975 money, that's like three houses and a car. (laughs) That's a lot of fucking money. That's still three houses and a car today, depending on where you live. Fair. I'm just saying, in terms of special effects and an animatronic, that still doesn't sound like too much. Especially when you're talking about the scale of what that thing has to be. Like, especially when I'm comparing it to the T-Rex. Yeah. I'm thinking, that sounds cheap. And I know, again, we're talking about 1970s money, but still, I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. I'm not mad about that number. Yeah, it it comes into further relief when you think about the total budget. It's like, oh, this was 10% of your budget were these three sharks. Well, 10% of your budget and it's your main character protagonist. Yeah, that's where the money needs to go. This is the thing that's terrorizing everybody. It needs to be scary. Yeah, well, they never tested it in salt water. Yeah, because they're dum dums. <laughs> Hence, all the fucking problems. See, they did test it in water, but they tested it at the Universal Studios tanks, mm-hmm. which are not salinated. Okay. So as soon as they put it into the ocean at Martha's Vineyard, the first time they put it in, it immediately sank to the bottom. Of course it did. Couldn't swim. Couldn't float. A team of divers immediately had to swim down and retrieve the shark. Yeah. And the salt constantly fucked up Bruce's controls. It was a constant battle to get that shark to work. Well, yeah, that sounds about right. Which takes a 55-day shoot to 158. (laughs) Because you were trying to get the fucking shark to work. See, and that to me is a little bit of somebody who was in charge of something didn't do their homework. Oh, it's pure hubris. It's pure hubris. And to me, that sounds like Apocalypse Now. <sighs> nope. Nope. There's no excuse for that. Oh, no, no, no. Apocalypse Now is worse. Because Apocalypse Now is in the middle of the actual jungle. Oh, I know. And like, at least you could go back to Martha's Vineyard on Jaws. At least you're in Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> As he got more and more frustrated with the shark and its malfunction, Spielberg took to calling it, quote, the great white turd. Uh, I don't blame him. Fair. They had to constantly fix and maintain it. And if they exposed it for lengthy shots, Spielberg started to figure out this thing doesn't look scary at all. Yeah. 
Totally. The longer it was out of the water, the worse it looked. Sure. That's the secret of like, again, this isn't a horror film. This is really a suspense film. Yeah. But you have to treat Jaws like a serial killer. You have to treat him like Freddy Krueger. You have to treat him like Jason. You have to treat him like this big scary beast that you really can only get glimpses of. I mean, it's funny because Spielberg's biggest claim to fame up until this point is a TV movie in which the killer is a truck because you never see the driver. So Spielberg realized, quote, I had no choice but to figure out how to tell the story without the shark. It's what we don't see, which is truly terrifying. Exactly. I mean, it is. It's a hard lesson, but, you know, I think he thought if we have this crazy thing, people are going to freak be freaked out by it. Then he realizes that's not what's scary about it. So he hated the way it looked. He shot it from constantly weird angles and underwater. And then they stripped that down to just tiny moments of film. Mm hmm. So then what they instead did was use tons of different shots giving the impression of the shark. Okay. Including like the buoys and the rippling underwater and all of that, which gives you the feeling that the shark is there so that once you finally see it, mm -hmm. it has an impact. Absolutely. In total, Bruce is only seen for four total minutes of screen time in this movie. That's enough. It's enough. And it is bonkers to think about because he has such a huge impact when you see him. Mm -hmm. But it it is, you think... Well, it's got to have been in there like 15, no, four minutes out of a two hour movie. Yep. <laughs> but the thing is, it's enough. It is. You don't need more. More would, I mean, it it would kind of take away from some of it. It is fascinating how that all worked out. And it's, it's luck. But credit to Spielberg of halfway through going, this ain't going to happen. <laughs> and pivoting. Yeah. And then when the shark would work, be like, let's get it done now. Before it breaks again. Yeah, let's not tempt fate. The sled shark tours museums regularly for people to see. Mm -hmm. So it's still around. There is Bruce 2, which is at Universal Studios, and appears in the Studio Backlot Tour Ride, which will also chomp at tourists yes. while on that ride. Fun story. I think I've been on that before, and I'm pretty sure Bruce wasn't working. Sure, of course not. <laughs> uh, and finally, of course, the shark in Finding Nemo is named Bruce which is likely a reference to Bruce from Jaws. I'm totally okay with that, <laughs> as he should be. Right then, the meeting has officially come to order. Let us all say the pledge. I now a nice shark, not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change this image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. All right, let's talk about awards. Awards? Okay, well, yeah, of course. That well, makes sense. This movie was nominated for four Oscars. Let me one. Let me guess what the what they are. Uh, okay. Okay, because this movie, so it would it would have to be the sound and the special effects ones. Sound, it won. Oh, okay. Special effects, not nominated. How is that possible? Because it's not special effects. But it is. The shark's not in the movie long enough. I'm going to go pout. What's the thing in this movie that we've talked about that's so amazing? Editing. Yeah, it won film editing. Oh, I'm not mad. And then, of course, what did it win? Best original score. Duh, duh. It's genius. It's fucking genius. And then at other times, it's like this. Like these, these like jazzy flutes. And like we're watching it. I was like, John Williams and his fucking happy flutes. Those 
fucking flutes. Hey, you want a little fun story about that? Of course. During I do. the during the jaunty carnival, everybody's coming to the beach scene. Steven Spielberg is playing first clarinet. That's annoying. Annoying, but I'm like, hey, good on you, Steven. This is something I didn't know about I you. I didn't know you had that skill. That's pretty cool. Yeah, John Williams won. And um, Williams admits that this is probably the thing that finally jump-started his career. He'd done some film scores before sure. this, but nothing was as a giant success as this. Well, I, I know this... I think we've all, because John Williams has had a prolific career at this point. Everybody knows who John Williams is. But we've all heard the story about this one. It's that he gave him the track, the donut, and Spielberg's like, okay, now tell me what you really have. Quote, that's funny, John, really, but what did you really have in mind for the theme? (laughs) Unquote. Totally. Which is great. But it's a gene, like the restraint of how, like everything else in it is classic John Williams. Yeah. Like I think I like I hear it and I was like, yeah, that's John Williams. That's everything you hear in Home Alone. Come on, but uh, it's just so iconic and it's so restrained. It's perfection. It's antithetical to everything John Williams does in other movies, and you know, well, it's suspenseful. And all the other tracks are meant to throw you off the fucking scent. Again, it's that horror film vibe that this film is not set up like a horror film, but it is. It's very much one. Spielberg admit, has admitted up and down, left and right, that this movie would have been half as successful if Williams hadn't made that score. He recognizes, like, John Williams is a big chunk of the reason why this movie did as well as it did. Absolutely. And of course, at accepting his awards at the Oscars that year, Williams was conducting the orchestra, so he had to run up to the podium, accept his Oscar, and then run, run right back. back down to go I've, lead the orchestra again. I've seen, I've seen that video, which is very cute. Like, I... On the one hand, you like feel sad for somebody for not like getting to have the full like I'm audience and I'm awesome moment, but at the same time, it's like I'm doing my thing, I'm doing my job, the thing that I'm amazing at. <gasps> I want it work. It's this like is so cool. It's like Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the funniest things ever. No, it's I I that's that's just a cool thing. And it was nominated for one additional Oscar, but it lost. What was that? Best picture. Oh, against what? We have the Stanley Kubrick historical epic, Barry Lyndon. Mm -hmm. We have Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino, directed by Sidney Lumet. Jaws, of course. Mm -hmm. Nashville, directed by Robert Altman. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which swept all five major awards that year. Um, I haven't seen that. 1975 in movies is maybe a good one to examine because that was with Cuckoo's Nest winning all those top Oscars amongst yeah. a sea of other good movies. That's another good year. How about some more Steven Spielberg hubris? Oh, sure. He was so goddamn certain he was going to win Best Picture, he had a news crew show up and film him and everybody in the crew at a special party. Of course they did. They didn't win. <laughs> they didn't win. Of course they did. <laughs> Okay, look, Jaws was the biggest fucking movie ever. And him being like, this is one of those situations where I go, God damn it, you were so young and fucking full of yourself. And you probably deserve to get knocked down that pig. You're just such a dick. You are such a dick. But I'm like, there are lots of people at that age who would probably pull that same bullshit. I just, (laughs) I don't have any sympathy for you. I, I'm really hoping later on we get to hear like good stories about Steven because I hear good stories. We have. I mean, like we like what he Poltergeist. Did, like Poltergeist, him like, okay, if you fry, I fry. Like I 
I like that's that's. I just hope this dickishness goes away a little bit. <laughs> this, this is a lot of ego bullshit. Also, fun fact: the Oscars host to that year, mm-hmm. Robert Shaw. Weird. <laughs> Well, this was back in the day when you would have like one of the big name stars host the Oscars. Well, that dude needed a paycheck. That's what was going on. He is the only host in history to die in a movie nominated in the ceremony. <laughs> that's that's kind of creepy. Like I'm not gonna lie, that comes off as creepy. Well, you know, Quint does get killed in the movie. Well, yeah, he does. Only time that has ever happened in Oscars history. Interesting. All right, now we are on to trivia. Trivia. And boy, there's a lot more fun trivia. Of course there is. According to Spielberg, the prop arm was too fake where they discovered Chrissy's remains, so they buried a female crew member in the sand with her forearm exposed. It's cool. To get a realistic look. I like that. And to get the crabs to move in that scene so they could see them, the prop master poured a little bit of hot coffee on the crabs to get them moving. Is that like humane? I don't know. There's some weird shit that went down to get some stuff to happen in this movie. We'll get into it. Oh, no. Here's what I'm going to say. It doesn't sound like anybody, like, made any claims, though it's, you know, 50 years from then and we have no way of verifying. Sure. And also, this sounds like this movie keeps going off the rails. We just have to get this done. Sure. And when that happens, sometimes you make some really fucking poor decisions. Yeah. The shooting star that goes across the skies, Brody is loading his revolver, was an actual shooting star that wasn't an effect that it was added later. Oh. In fact, throughout that whole sequence as the sun is rising, you can see in a few shooting stars going across the sky. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The ship being named the Orca is actually pretty prescient. The killer whale is the only known enemy of sharks and the only known predator of the great white shark. Okay. I like that. However, the ship was originally called the Warlock. Hmm. Lots about the orca here. It was a studio fabrication that they built from the ground up based on a boat that they purchased for the film from the locals. Okay. So they took a pretty crappy boat and then were like, okay, let's build it so that we can put film rig on it. Okay. When they finished building it, though, it was so top heavy because of all the shit that they had to put on it that it wasn't seaworthy. They could correct that pretty easily by adding lead ballast. But there was only one place to get lead in the area. And that was from a local dentist who had just bought a bunch of it to line his x-ray room. Oh, okay. So for a very large fee, the dentist allowed them to rent the lead for filming. It's hilarious. By the time they finished, the fake boat was more seaworthy than a real boat. Hmm. Until while filming, the orca had an accident. And began sinking. You see, to get the orca to rock back and forth after being hit by the shark, in quotes, they had a speedboat with a rope tied to it running under the orca's hull, hooked to the opposite side. They would gun the engine of the speedboat at full speed. They started to flip it. Violently rocking the boat and throwing the actors off balance. It's exactly the effect they wanted. Like all that stuff where the three of them are getting thrown around the boat. Yeah. Looks real because it is real. So stupid. Except after about the third or fourth time, a hole ripped open in the hull because you're gunning a speedboat at full speed. So fucking stupid. (laughs) Spielberg started shouting over the bullhorn to save the actors. Well, that is the appropriate thing to save. Yeah. Except one of the sound guys who's got his boom in his hand with knees already in water shouted, fuck the actor, save the sound department. Fair. (laughs) 
And then the camera got submerged, which is terrifying in the 70s, because remember, we're using real film. Yeah, they don't have digital. It's not a thing. So they assumed it was ruined. Then someone on shore realized that the developing solution for film is saline. They were in salt water, so they saved it. They managed, they could salvage the film. They got it over to a processing studio, and they managed to get it developed with no problems. Cool. So, hey. It's pretty cool. All they did was kind of like start the development process early. Yep. Just um, also lost your boat while doing it. Well, y'all are dum-dums. <laughs> the shark killed on the docks, the first, quote, man-eater, was an actual shark that they had killed in Florida because there wasn't a big enough shark to kill and use in Martha's Vineyard. That makes sense. Yeah, well, by the time they shipped it over, it had already started to badly decompose, of and the course. smell and sight was appalling. Gross. And then, and I'm sorry, y'all might want to skip a few seconds for this, because it was hanging from its tail, its organs came loose and piled up near its head. Of course it did. Making it even more disgusting to deal with. Yum. <laughs> this is why you use a prop. Yeah. You make a prop. Nice. To film Chrissy's death in the water at the beginning of the movie, actress Susan Backlany was attached to two 300-pound weights that were pulled by two groups of crewmen on shore. One group would pull right and one pulled left, and the sequence took about three days to film. The rumor has always gone that she was injured by this, like terribly badly injured, mm -hmm. but according to Backlany and most of them, they're like, nothing happened. Like, we just filmed it. Hmm. So, uh, I'll, I'll take their word for it. I feel like the actors would have told us if something went horribly wrong. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it did go horribly wrong and she got paid off or whatever. Eh. It's I, I hope she's okay. Yes. <laughs> However, to get the proper sound effect, they positioned her with her head upside down in front of a microphone and poured water down her throat. So they waterboarded her. They waterboarded her. her. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. <sighs> Look, I'll admit the sound is terrifying. Yep. Because it sounds like somebody's drowning, but I hate it. Um, Please tell me she was paid very, very well for her time making I, this role. I hope she consented to it and that they were uh, uh, took the appropriate breaks necessary. <laughs> I please God. Whew. When loading up the orca, there is a small gray shack with a red door near Quint's house. That was the home of an actual resident of the town and was originally pissed off the spray paint they were using on the facade of Quint's home floated onto some of his boats, which I understand that would be not great. However, he started to learn just how little they understood about fishing and boating and decided he'd offer to assist. Lynn Murphy probably became the most important production partner on this film. Mm. He had the equipment and the boating expertise to teach all of these Hollywood knuckleheads how to sail and how to get the boats to move around in the sea. Mm. And he was also the other inspiration for Shaw's portrayal of Quint. The longer they spent around him, the more Shaw incorporated Lynn Murphy stuff into his mm. performance. He did not get credit in the film, but he was paid very, very handsomely for all of his assistance on the movie. Nice. So he definitely deserves some credit. The average tourist season would bring about 5,000 to Martha's Vineyard before this film was released. That was the summer population. Okay. After the filming, 15,000. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to sit on the beach. <laughs> I don't want to go in the water, though. Fuck no. During the battle scar scene, we see Roy Scheider lift up his shirt and show an appendix incision. That was Roy Scheider's own appendix scar. 
It's a very funny bit. It's very cute. Because they're, you know, they're comparing sharks cars and he's like, what's that? Appendix. He never actually says it. I know, but he's you just, just you so... You just know he's looking at it and I knew he's like, oh, an appendix car. <laughs> I love that he's just so drunk. He's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I know I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> Chief Brody's just so wholesome. The gray sky and clouds during the water scenes is completely artificial. It's actually an image on a giant wall in Universal Studios. The wall also contains a giant artificial lake called Falls Lake that's been used in about 20 different movies. Hmm. When Hooper's getting attacked in the cage, you see footage of an actual great white shark with a rope hanging from its mouth. Hmm. That shark's mouth is visibly smaller than the mouth of Bruce attacking the boat later. Because it's actual footage of a great white. They got Ron and Valerie Taylor, who are very famed shark photographers, along with a shark expert, Rodney Fox, to help them film actual footage for that cage scene. They knew that the sharks would be smaller than what Bruce was. So what they did with this, they constructed a smaller cage for the exterior shots and then used a small mannequin or a little person to substitute for Richard Dreyfus in that cage with the actual sharks. Hmm. However, while filming, one of those sharks got caught in the cables and tore the cage apart. We see that in the movie. That was a complete accident, but they caught the footage and Spielberg and everybody loved it so much, they decided they would rewrite the script so that Hooper would hide out on the floor of the ocean Mm. and we would get to incorporate that footage of the cage getting ripped to shreds. I like that. That was cool. Yeah, it was a really smart move. Um, however, the little person acting in that scene refused to go back in that cage again. <laughs> 100% respect that. <laughs> Mythbusters did an entire special on how plausible the stuff in this movie was. No, I kind of want to watch that. Are you ready for their conclusions? Yes, I am. Piano wire does not have the tensile strength needed to catch a shark. There. Scuba tanks do not explode when shot. Disappointing. Great white sharks can ram a dive cage hard enough to breach it or destroy them entirely. Great whites could punch a hole in a wooden boat given the right circumstances. However, it has never happened in documented sailing history. A shark at full speed and force could pull water barrels underwater, but that force would only keep them underwater for a very short amount of time. Okay. A shark couldn't pull a boat backwards with enough speed to have its waves breach the stern of the boat. And finally, punching a shark in the nose, eyes, or gills will cause it to flee or at minimum back away long enough for you to get away from it. Okay, good to know. So. Punch a shark in the face. Lots of not possibles. A few plausibles. I mean, I don't care. (laughs) Like, it's one of those, I don't care. Bruce is just a really fucking strong, great white shark. He's a rogue shark, oh, which man. they do say several times, which I also appreciate. Like, they're like, he's acting rogue. Mm-hmm. Despite Hooper's warnings, the air tanks that they're using are pretty durable. Dropping or rolling them would not be an issue. They're not going to explode with that. Now, if you break the tank valve, they become a flying missile. Yes. <laughs> During the final shot at the tank to blow up the shark, the gun jammed at least four times before finally working. That's so rude. Apparently, despite all of these problems, everybody loved spending time at Martha's Vineyard. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, like they all to a person were like, the town was lovely. Well, that's 
Nice. They got to hang out. Basically, it was like a long vacation when they weren't out having to work. That's nice. Except for one person, Richard fucking Dreyfus. He was pissed because he wanted to be working. He was young, he was cocky, and he wanted to be back out there making more movies and doing more theater. I, I told like, here's the thing. I totally get that. I mean, if I'm not actually working, I could be working on something else. In six like, months. In six months. Like, this is a waste of my time. Yeah. I totally, like, and I, I've heard on so many shows, just like, people want to come see films. That's like, it's the most boring fucking thing in the world. Oh, yeah. And how much time is just sitting around waiting to get to do the thing and then it's great to get to do the thing but so much of your time is like people are like well how do you have time to write a book to do these other projects to do these things and it's like <laughs> do you know how much time i'm in my fucking trailer do you know how much time i'm sitting on set like yeah i've memorized my lines i've gone over them so many goddamn times i can't do it anymore i have to do something else it's just the the shark didn't work we were on a boat for days yeah i <laughs> No, Robert didn't. Shaw read an entire play of his to Richard Dreyfus in between shots. Like. <laughs> so, like, I'm sure he was an absolute asshole about it, but I totally understand just being like, you guys are wasting my time. Well, Spielberg said Dreyfus would half joke to him, quote, what am I doing here? I should be walking into Sardis to applause and acclaim. That's just funny. <laughs> That's just funny. I think he was, I think he was good humored, but he was like, get me out of here. <laughs> I just want to finish this movie so I can go make more movies and be famous and rich. The Brody family's Cocker Spaniels were Steven Spielberg's actual dogs. Cute. And the license plate that Hooper pulls from the shark's stomach has 007 on it. A very likely intentional reference to James Bond. We love James Bond. Steven Spielberg's always wanted to make a Bond movie. Ew. No. No, thank you. And that means we did it. We di we did it. We talked about Jaws. We talked about Jaws. It's a big fucking deal. It's a big fucking deal. I feel like air tanks. Air tanks make the most sense here. Mm. It's not sharks. It's not sharks. There's only one. There's only one shark. No, I'm just thinking of like how many legs. <laughs> how many severed arms? How many severed arms? How many tanks? How many, uh, what, what are the things that they attach to him? The water barrels? Water barrels. Ooh. I think water barrels are good. Okay, okay. I like water barrels. How many ship barrels are we going to give Jaws? And this is my movie. This is your movie, so you have to go first. I'm going to go first. I'm going to go four and a half. Hmm. Only because it is the tiniest bit rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. It's a 70s movie. Yeah. And it's a very inexperienced director at the very least he is experienced at this point but he is not experienced in making a giant motion sure. picture and this was epic but it's only a half a point for that because the roughness around the edges is part of what makes it so compelling and interesting <laughs> it's not perfect but it's so damn good and it's so damn important for like eight thousand reasons and it also doesn't hurt that the acting's really good agreed I just, it holds up so well, despite feeling a little bit too 1975. It feels like it shouldn't, but it's just so good still mm -hmm. and so watchable. Four and a half barrels. Uh, I'm going to give it the same rating. It's four and a half. Um, really, for me, it's just some of that dialogue is just shit. 
Like it's just, it's there's just parts that are messy and that need to be cleaned up. It's talking for the sake of talking. There's a lot of that, which is a common trope in '70s films. Yeah, yeah. it's just like you know, you could just put more attractive people on the screen and accomplish what you wanted to do. <laughs> and like the some of the the there's like there's just busy work happening, especially with the mayor that I didn't need, I didn't like. But you know, the story's great. And it definitely holds up. Made me uncomfortable as fuck. <laughs> uh, like David was just laughing because he could just see me recoiling, and he just he just thought it was hilarious because I don't do that very often. It's because I knew I was like, this movie is doing exactly what it was intended <laughs> no, to do, and it's effective. It's very effective. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's four and a half. I mean, I don't want to watch it ever again, but it's great. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's good. Well, now we're gonna go from sharks to aliens. Woohoo! But not E.T. No, Everybody knows about E.T. We've seen E.T. But it's like they forget that he did an alien movie before this. He really had aliens on the brain. Because it was this and E.T. And then Poltergeist is basically just... It was, was literally him trying to do Close Encounters 2, but he couldn't do it. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's something we learned when we did Poltergeist. This is a movie that I remember loving. Okay. But I also remember being very weird for a blockbuster. I feel like this one is going to explain some things that I have seen in other films. Oh my God, yeah. Sure. Especially like, I love Stranger Things. Just, uh, yeah, I know it's going to be one of those origin. And get ready for a theme that will be stuck in your fucking head. Oh, joy. For the end of time. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.